even moment by moment decisions to follow Jesus Christ and committed discipleship add up to make the totality of our lives. Yes, there are occasional episodes of failure and occasional periods of extreme faithfulness. But the believer's final evaluation, and for the New Testament believer at the judgment seat of Christ, will be based upon the cumulative effort, the totality of our time here lived in faithfulness to God. Yet, the periods of punctuated faithfulness are significant and often contribute to what might be called spiritual greatness. Certainly, David had one of those moments of punctuated faithfulness when he fought Goliath. And now, approximately four decades later, he's going to have another opportunity to excel. The second of the two opportunities occurred as a result of David's sin and God's discipline of him. The way David handled the discipline is so magnificent that it qualifies as one of the highlights of David's life. The circumstances are radically different from his encounter with Goliath. But this episode that we begin to study tonight demonstrates that even in the midst of discipline, something good can happen. Faithfulness can be exhibited and God can be glorified. So if we were to look at probably two of the greatest moments of punctuated faithfulness in David's life, one comes with Goliath, when he's certainly not under discipline. But the second, ironically, comes when he's in the middle of discipline. And most of us would think that if I'm in the middle of discipline, my spiritual life's on hold until I get over this discipline. David demonstrates to us that even if we're undergoing discipline, if we handle the discipline properly, with integrity and with humility and with poise, even that can be a moment of punctuated faithfulness that exhibits spiritual greatness. In chapter 15, we see in verse 13, Then a messenger came to David, saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. So go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down calamity. On us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Then the king's servant said to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him. But the king left ten concubines to keep the house. And the king went out and all the people with him, and they stopped at the last house. Now all his servants passed on beside him the Carolithites, the Pelethites, the Gittites, 600 men who had come with him from Gath passed on before the king. David knows something about fleeing. He knows something about running. He did it for almost 10 years of his life. His 20s were spent running from Saul, basically from age 20 to age 30. And he knows that the only way that he's going to survive this rebellion is to run, is to flee. There are times to stay, and there are times when one must go. It depends upon what God's will is at that particular moment. And we need to be walking in fellowship with God so that we're sensitive enough to know that this is a time when I should stand my ground and I should stay. But there may come a day when God wants you to go. And if that's the time, that if you're supposed to go and you stay, then you're going to be sinning. If you're supposed to stay and you go, you're going to be sinning. So we need to be very sensitive about this. 
there may be times where you may be faced with this same situation. This is not totally theoretical. This may be very practical, much more practical than anyone would like to think. David knew that this was a time to flee, not just for him, but for a lot of people that were loyal to him, because it wasn't just him that was going to get killed. It was all the people that were loyal to him that Absalom was going to take out. This surely had to be one of the saddest days of his life. His own son was leading a rebellion against him, and his heart must have been crushed. In a case of God's perfect irony, David experiences the betrayal that he himself had thrust upon his friend Uriah the Hittite. Of course, Uriah died without knowing that he had been betrayed, but a part of David's discipline was to endure the feelings of betrayal. David handles this situation with humility and with dignity. David's sin was private, but his discipline was very public. And that is something that has to be handled with humility. We'll have more to say about the specifics of the flight from Absalom in the next couple of lessons. But tonight I want to focus upon what was going on in David's mind, in David's soul, as he finds himself once more on the run. Fortunately, this is one of those times when we're not left to speculate what was on David's mind. For there's a psalm that really nicely expresses what David was thinking. Psalm 3 is a lament psalm that David wrote when he fled from his son Absalom. As David is going along his daily, with his daily routine, building his own palace, accumulating the materials for the temple that would be built later, raising his family in the probably an inefficient way, but he still had to take care of his family. He had to take care of the, the people. While he's doing that, Absalom planned and then executed a rebellion against his father. David's only option for survival was to turn the whole matter of his safety over to the Lord in prayer. There was simply no other solution available. And that's right where the Lord wanted David. Totally helpless. Totally dependent. The Lord, who was his shepherd, who made him to lie down in green pastures, who led him beside still waters, who restored his soul, was indeed with him as he walked through this valley that was overshadowed by death. David, by all accounts, was a very powerful man. Now, he's about 60 years old when this passage opens in the Absalom Rebellion. He was a warrior, though, even at this age. He'd killed Goliath, yes, we know about that, but also countless others in battle. He was a mighty man. But here he was weak. Absalom, from a military standpoint, was much stronger than David. David didn't have... A chance just by going might against might with his, against his son Absalom at this point. But even though he was weak, he was never stronger than at this point when he realized how weak he was and looked to the Lord for deliverance. Now, that's the lesson here, my friends. That's the lesson. He was never stronger in his life than the point in time when he realized he was so weak he couldn't do it himself. 
and that he turned it over to someone who could do it, the omnipotent God of the universe, the shepherd about which he had written earlier in his life. The apostle Paul would say the same thing about a thousand years later. When I am weak, then I am strong. Seems like a paradox, but it's a powerful spiritual truth that all of us need to get through our heads. When I'm weak, then I'm strongest. It's, we are weakest when we set God aside and say, I'll take care of this myself. Thank you very much. I don't need you. That's when you get KO'd in the spiritual life. And you're going to see the strength of David here. Psalm 3. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain, Selah. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me, around me. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessing be upon thy people. Selah. The superscription tells us that Psalm 3 was written on the occasion that we're studying David's flight from Absalom. Or to be more accurate, it was probably written the morning after the flight. In a word... David fled from Absalom, and he wait, when he laid down to sleep, he prayed that he would be delivered from his enemy. When he awoke, he awoke with new confidence. God had protected him through the night. This was a sign to David that God would deliver him fully, even though he's still in danger when he writes Psalm 3. This is just the next day. His prayer in the psalm is for God to deliver him completely from his enemies. But it is prayed with the strongest confidence because of the way that God had sustained him so far. The first two verses of this psalm in outline record David's lament, simply stating that his enemies had become, become so many, so large, and that they were taunting his own faith. They were mocking him. They were talking trash to him and about him. Verses 3 through 6 record his extended confidence based on his immediate answer to prayer. Verse 7 records the petition for deliverance, but even here confidence takes over. And the final verse of the psalm is an exclamation of praise offered here in confidence, but to be fully expounded in the sanctuary when David could fulfill his vow of praise. No matter how bad things might appear at the moment. The believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can petition God with confidence for complete deliverance because God reveals his covenant faithfulness through answered prayer. I don't know what it is you're going through tonight. A lot of you have unspoken requests. You don't want to tell anybody about it. Some of the requests we know. Some, some of you, we know exactly what kind of health conditions you're going through. But I want to tell you, no matter how bad that appears, no matter how bad your financial situation, no matter how bad your family situation, no matter how bad the economic situation in the United States or the political situation in the United States is, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ can petition God 
with confidence for deliverance from that problem. Maybe that's why we have the problem, some of the problems we have, at least politically, nationally, economically, because we haven't petitioned God. And if we've been trying human solutions for too long, we might want to try a divine solution for a change and petition him for the answer to our problems. But we can do it because God answers our prayers because of his covenant faithfulness, his hesed. In verse 1, O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. The psalm begins its address to God by using the personal name for God, O Yahweh. It's the name that belongs to the covenant. It's personal. When God explained his name to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, he made it clear that his name, the name itself, was a pledge of the realization of covenant promises. When David uses the name here in his cry for help, he's appealing to the infinite personal God of the universe who's promised to help him in time of need. The infinite personal God of the universe. Last Saturday, I was going down Hillcroft toward the, goal, toward the Southwest Freeway. I noticed on my left the church with the pyramids, the Unity Church of Christianity, which is a farce. It's a farce. They're not even theistic. They don't believe in an infinite personal God. They believe in a semi-infinite, if there could be such a thing, impersonal force. That's called pantheism. It's not even theistic. It's interesting to me they have to lie to bring people into that church. They're not Christian in any sense of the word. They're not even theistic. But David understood that the God of the universe that he's praying to is infinite and he's personal. He's not just a force. He's not a computer. He's not a machine. He's your loving heavenly father. Now, I hope you had a loving earthly father. I certainly did. And I would never treat, have treated my earthly father like a machine or like a computer. When I wanted to talk to him, I sat down with him and I just talked to him. And that's the way God wants you to treat him. Now, he is God, but he's given you the opportunity because of your relationship to him through Jesus Christ to come to him with your requests. I've got three kids. If any of them was in trouble at all, and I found out about it later that they didn't come to me for help, I would be mighty insulted. I would be upset that they didn't trust me enough to be able to come to me for help. Your father wants you to go to him for whatever is troubling you right now. And even if you're in the middle of discipline and you know the trouble you have right now is because you've done whatever it is, and you're fairly certain that you're in the middle of discipline, you can still go to him to get through that discipline. You don't have to put your prayer life on hold until you get finished with it. This is 10 years worth of discipline for David. He's at the end of the 10th year now. But he didn't put his spiritual life on hold. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. Yes, I'll help you. I'll strengthen you. I'll help you. Yes, I'll sustain you with my righteous right hand, said the prophet Isaiah. The number of the adversaries was a problem for David, but it wasn't a problem for God. There is no degree of difficulty when you're omnipotent. It doesn't matter if there's 100 people coming against you or 1,000 or the whole world. The idea is to get God on your side and then not worry about it. Let him take care of it. That's what David's going to do. And this is why one of the reasons why David is so great. I, I'm calling it tonight an, an, an issue of punctuated faithfulness, even while he's undergoing discipline. So here we have David, the king of Israel, running for his life. And Absalom, having mustered 
a vast number of supporters chasing his father down. To me, this shows the fickleness of the mob. That's what's wrong with democracy. We were not founded as a democracy. Democracies fail. Republics last. But the mob can be very fickle. And this mob was fickle here. They turn, they turn against David on a, on a dime. A similar rebellion occurred in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you'll think of it, Palm Sunday, they welcome him as a conquering hero. By the time the week's over, he's been executed. The only difference is, in Jesus' case, he didn't flee. You know, they both took the same route. That, that fateful night of before Jesus' crucifixion, he left the upper room crossed the Kidron Valley, and started up the Mount of Olives. He stopped at the Garden of Gethsemane. On the faithful day for David, he crosses the Kidron Valley, takes the same path up the Mount of Olives, but doesn't stop. He goes over the top. Interesting to me that both David and his greater son took the same path at perhaps the most stressful day of their lives. In verse 2, our faith becomes more and more critical when we're taunted. For our faith in the culture in which we live if you hadn't been paying attention Christians are being taunted with respect to their faith every day my home page I don't know why I hope but my home page for my internet is Yahoo and if you don't think we're being taunted switch your home page to Yahoo for a while every single day it seems as though Christianity is ridiculed on that home page Every single day. And David is going to be taunted as well. Many are saying of my soul, of my life, there is no deliverance for him in God. David thinks he's such hot stuff. But that Goliath thing was 40 years ago. He's yesterday's news. I'm going with a new guy. In fact, it looks to me like his spiritual life is so shot. Best I can tell by observing David's spiritual life over the last 10 years, he doesn't seem to be walking with God at all because a lot of things seem to be going bad for him. Remember back that child back there? I bet that had something to do with, with some sin that he had committed. And then you remember one of David's sons, Amnon, raped Tamar, one of his daughters. And then Absalom killed Amnon. Then he had to run. Now Absalom's back. And look what's happening to David. Doesn't seem like God's going to deliver him. It's a taunt. They're talking trash to him. And that's what the mob will do. As soon as you can't help them anymore, you watch and step back and see if they're going to be loyal to you. Well, they weren't loyal to David at this point. The word for deliverance in verse 2 is a common word, a yasha, that's often translated salvation. It basically means to set free, to deliver, to save. It's a partner of the New Testament word soteria or the verb sozo which means to save. In Hebrew Bible most of the time when this word comes up it's speaking of a deliverance from a position of danger into a position of safety. From a position of danger into a position of safety. Round numbers about three quarters of the time. In Hebrew Bible, that's what's being spoken of by salvation or deliverance. And this is one of those places, oh, Lord, help me. Absalom's coming to kill me. Help me. Same way thing he prayed with Saul. Oh, Lord, help me. That was a prayer for deliverance from physical danger into physical safety. When we get to the New Testament, it's reversed. The overwhelming majority of the time, the New Testament terms are used for deliverance 
They're used of a deliverance from a place of spiritual death into a place of spiritual life. And then there's that one unique place in James where it's a reference from a deliverance from the position of spiritual immaturity into a position of spiritual maturity. But here when, we, when he's talking about deliverance, he's obviously talking about physical deliverance. He's already saved. He's been saved for decades upon decades. And God hasn't left him. Matter of fact, God's right with him. I want you to also notice here, because in verse 2, they are going to say there is no deliverance for him in God. That's not going to stop him when he gets down to verse 7 for praying for that same deliverance that they say there is no deliverance for him in God. Verses 3 through 6, we see David praying with confidence, even though he's in a rough spot, even though... He's in, under discipline right now, and I have no doubt that David knew it. But his confidence is not based on his own ability. His confidence is based upon God and his character. And when we pray, we ought to recognize that. When Jesus taught his disciples to pray, we ought not to forget that first part. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That's just old English for your name is magnificent. You know how sometimes you hear people pray, O magnificent Lord, O omnipotent, sovereign Lord. That's okay. That's actually good, especially in your private prayers when you may have more time. To list God's attributes when you're praying to him is a recognition on the part of yourself before God that you, you realize who you're praying to, that God loves you in a very personal way. He's your eternal father. He loves you even more than anybody else has ever loved you on earth, no matter how anybody's ever loved you on earth. He's still God, and you're not. And to recognize that in our prayers is a good thing. So David recognizes this in verses 3 through 6. But thou, O Lord, art a shield around me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. The first point of confidence is that Yahweh is his protection. Here David uses a metaphor comparing the Lord to a shield. This is one of those kind of shields that was a light shield used to deflect arrows or other implements that had been fired at him. So by using this metaphor, the Lord, Yahweh, is pictured as able to, do, to deflect the arrows that were coming David's way almost effortlessly and at a moment's notice. The second metaphor here is a little bit more abstract. He says, you are my glory. For a king in the ancient world... And it seems as though, even for monarchs today, the few that are still out there, like the Queen of England, the trappings of the monarchy, the palace, the throne, the robes, in David's case, the royal wives or other ancient kings, the royal wives, that might have been what they considered their glory, the palace that they lived in. But not David. There was no glory in those things for him. By stating that Yahweh is his glory, he probably means two things. First, the trappings that make him glorious have to do with his relationship to the Lord. Not to buildings, not to robes, not to wives, not to money. Scripture teaches that one's greatest glory, the greatest glory for the believer, is in knowing and being known by God. Or as Paul would say, all glorying 
must be in Christ. And secondly, David's saying that whatever he has of earthly glory came from Yahweh. The Lord had chosen him to be king, not Absalom. It's not Absalom's time. So this is not going to succeed. You don't have to be the queen of England in order to have glory on this earth. We take our glory from our relationship with God. That makes us multi-billionaires. Someday we may have to say multi-trillionaires. But that's where we get our value in life, is from our relationship with God. So that's the second metaphor. The first one was the shield. The second one was the glory. And the third figurative expression describes God as the one who lifts up or exalts his head. The image is of restoring someone to honor and to dignity. At this moment, David had very little honor. He's on the run. He's been run out of town. He's being publicly disciplined. But he realizes that God will lift him up. If God wants him to live, he's going to live. If God wants Absalom to take over, there's nothing David could do. But David knows that Absalom hadn't been anointed king. And so he recognizes these three things. The Lord is a shield. The Lord is his glory. And the Lord is the one who's going to lift his head up and to restore him. Most of the time, we have, we have a tendency to try to do this ourselves, especially when people have assassinated our character. I hope that's never happened to you. It's, it's not a fun thing. And there's a choice you have to make. Do I defend myself or do I let the Lord defend me? And sometimes the Lord defends you by you defending yourself. It depends on, on the particular situation. But ultimately, when it's all said and done, the Lord's going to have to do it. And he will be the one that restores your reputation. In verse 4, I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from the holy mountain. I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves around and against me. The, the Old Testament scholar Alan Ross points out that all the verb forms in these two verses should be given a past tense translation. And he recommends this as a more consistent translation, translating these as the prophetic perfects. I cried out to you, O Yahweh, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and I slept. I woke again because Yahweh sustained me. David is writing this on the morning after that he prayed. But as he expresses it, he's expressing it as a reality. There are really two ways. Let me explain this. There are two ways to understand this section. One is to say that David was praying for deliverance in the evening of the flight. And in these two verses, he prays God for the answer to prayer in faith. In other words, anticipating what would happen. It hadn't happened yet, but David was so confident that it would happen that he praised God in anticipation of what would happen. You probably prayed that too. I thank you, Lord, for the answer that you're going to give to this prayer. We prayed that here. This view is, is in harmony with some of the later lament psalm. The praise is given before the answer is actually realized. The other way to see the psalm was that it was completed the next morning. David fled from Absalom, cried to the Lord, and was sustained through the night. Then in the morning, he used the experience to develop his confidence in the nature of God, and so he petitioned God for full deliverance at that point. Either view would fit the context, and Old Testament scholarship has adopted both of them from time to time. 
But in both cases, David was able to sleep after praying to God. According to 2 Samuel chapter 16, verses 14, and chapter 17, verses 21 through 22, and the light, at the light of the morning, he and his followers had fled. He prayed, apparently slept, prayed again, and then fled. That's the order that he goes in, which seems to fit that second view that I gave you a little better. But in either case, these words form what David will say when he returns to the sanctuary and stands to praise God in the congregation of the righteous. You know what David is not? He's not someone who forgets who delivered him after it's all over. Oh, I know. I don't know about you, but I, I know about me. I know there have been plenty of times I have just prayed fervently for deliverance from a particular problem. And then when that deliverance came, I know fully well that I did not thank God with the same fervency with which I petitioned him. But we need to thank him with every bit as much enthusiasm as we go to him and request. In verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God. What he's praying for is the very thing that his enemies say God's not going to do. Verse 3, There is no deliverance for him, they say. But in verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek, thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Technically speaking, this hasn't happened yet. That's why Al Ross calls these prophetic perfect perfects. He is so confident he knows it's going to happen. He made it through the night. So now he's extremely confident that if God got him through that night, that he's going to deliver him. The Lord is the one that's actually doing the smiting, although David and his men, primarily David's men, will do the fighting. But he's going to smite David's enemies through David's loyal soldiers. So he's going to be praying for it, the very things that his enemies said wouldn't happen. Some people bring up, why would David say, arise, Yahweh, as if he was asleep? But that's not what's going here, here at all. God doesn't need rousing he's not asleep but the verb arise is often used in the sense of establishing either his preeminence or the covenant promises or his people you know what david is saying lord show yourself show yourself to all these people that think that you've turned your back on me show yourself to all these people that have turned their back on you you see this is not so much about david David wants God's reputation to be upheld. That's what he means when he says, Arise, O Lord, save me. For your own glory, I ask that you do this. Deliver me. It's the same root that was used in verse 3. So David turns their taunt into a petition, and the petition will turn into praise in the final verse. Salvation belongs to the Lord, or deliverance belongs to the Lord. This verse sums it all up, and this is what David is going to pray when he comes back from this disaster. The, the exaltation that is salvation, the deliverance comes from the Lord. That's why the righteous will pray to God for it. That deliverance and all other benefits from God make up the blessing that is upon the people of God. And this was written in an Old Testament context. But the same God that David prayed to is the God that you're going to pray to tonight when your head hits that pillow or before it does. It's the same God. 
the same God that rescued David when he's fleeing from Absalom is the God that you're going to pray to tomorrow morning when you get that call from the doctor about that biopsy report. The same God that David prayed to is the God that you're going to pray to tomorrow afternoon when you find out that your son or daughter lost their job or that you lost yours. It's the same God with the same omnipotence. And if he could strike the enemies of David on the cheek and break their jaw, he can get you a job. He can take care of that doctor's report or that tumor or that bleeding, whatever it may end up being. It's the same God. Well, so to conclude, in, in one of the darkest moments of his life, David prayed to the Lord and then calmly and confidently went to sleep, knowing that Yahweh was his defense, his glory, and the one that would restore him to the throne. He was not crushed or in despair by what was going on with, with respect to his enemies. He simply poured out his petition to God and called upon him to display his glory by crushing the revolt against him. It's a great comfort to believers when we find opposition and ridicule from the enemies of the faith that we can turn our burdens over to the Lord and rest confidently in him. Like David, we must ultimately find our confidence in God. We must rely upon him in prayer, and then we must be ready to praise his name in victory, just like David does. The blessing be upon thy people. Thy blessing be upon thy people. But in order to do this, we must walk in fellowship with the Lord, and we must demonstrate our loyalty to the Lord like David did through obedience to his word so that we know that our enemies are also the Lord's enemies. If God is for us, who can possibly be against us?